Well, good morning. <clears throat> my name is Mike. As he said, some of you are familiar faces. Some of you, uh, this may be the first time we're meeting. Um, I don't have much time for intro. Um, they only gave me 40 minutes and I got an hour's worth of stuff. So um, I'm going to make this quick. Uh, my name's Mike. I'm formerly a member of, my wife and I are a member of Grace Community Church here. Newton served as an elder, was serving as an elder when brought Jack on. And so during that time, I'm the former pastor at Grace Community Fellowship Church in Hillsboro, one of our Synergy churches. And uh, hopefully this next week, well, a week from now, or maybe by the end of the month, um, I will start a job at Tabor College in the area of student success, and so moving into that realm. And so, but it's good to be back here with you and to see familiar faces and to be able to preach uh, through God's Word together. And so I want to start with this, asking this question, how do you view the Bible? What is your view of Scripture? Is it a book of teachings written by men with stories and advice on how to live one's life? Or do you see it as the inspired words of God, teaching about God and His ways? See, the Bible was written over a period of roughly 2,000 years by 40 different authors from three continents who wrote in three different languages, yet there is one identifiable theme throughout the entirety of Scripture. John 5 says this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Jesus' own words, he's saying the theme of the entirety of scripture is me. Everything in his book is about me because everything points to me. Starting in creation. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God, which includes Jesus, created heaven and the earth. John 1. In the beginning, the word was with God. The word was God. The word was with God. Um, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. See, the Bible is God's redemptive story through Jesus Christ. Starting in Genesis 1 and 2, God walking with man, God and man in an unhindered relationship together. Creation is operating as God has intended. Relationships between humans are working as God designed. Genesis 3, God's original design is broken. Relationship between God and man is broken. Relationships between man and man is broken. Creation is now broken. Revelation 22, 21 and 22, all things restored to God's design, God and man, man and man, and creation, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepare as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and he will be the, his people and God himself will be with them as their God. See, Genesis 3 through Revelation 20, God is restoring what was lost due to sin. God is reconciling to himself all things through Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, for God was pleased to have all his fullness, fullness dwell in him and through him to re reconcile to himself all things. It's the story of Scripture. Starting in Genesis 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I'm going to go through this pretty fast. You can go look at this somewhere else. But here it is in Exodus. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Leviticus, the high priest, representative of the temple, sacrifice on the altar. Ruth, Kingsman Redeemer, Proverbs, Wisdom, Isaiah, Promised Messiah, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the Suffering Servant, Wounded for Our Transgressions and Bruised for Our Iniquities. Hosea, the Ever-Faithful Husband, Pursuing His Unfaithful Bride. Habakkuk, just as we've read, the reason for rejoicing, our strength even when the fields are empty. Matthew, King of the Jews. Mark, Servant King. Luke, Son of Man. John, Son of God. Who, uh, the Word made flesh who dwelt among us. And Acts, He is the risen Lord, bringing salvation to all nations. And then in Hebrews, He is our High Priest, the author and finisher of our faith. Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as a High Priest of the, God, of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the Holy of Places, not by means of blood and goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. See, the Bible is the inspired Word of God. It is about Jesus Christ. And since Jesus Christ is our model on how to live, the Bible therefore has a lot to say about how we are to live our lives. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It is inspired by God. It is God's Word. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. What? That the man of God may be completely equipped. I know it says complete equipped if you look at the Greek. Complete equipped for every good work. I'm going to summarize this passage really quick using someone else's words. These verses describe a person furnished completely to do whatever God called him to perform. If Timothy would mature, uh, nurture his spiritual life in the scriptures that he would use in his ministry, he would be fully qualified and prepared to undertake whatever God's task put before him. What a tragedy for any Christian to be labeled as spiritually unprepared for a task when the means of instruction and preparation are readily at hand. A lot of people want to think, well, the Old Testament is not for us and but we see Christ in the Old Testament. We see things for us. The book of Habakkuk, which we've seen some verses. It instructs the faithful in their appropriate response to the God of vengeance and life. He tells us the righteous are to live by faith. No matter what happens, no matter what uh, <coughs> God does, even if He uses a wicked nation to bring judgment on His people, what are His people to do? They are to trust God. No matter what God does, trust God. In Haggai. We see that the people's disobedience wasn't a physical problem. It was a heart issue. He encourages those just, that have just returned from the exile to remain faithful, obedient, and hopeful. And then the theme of Hebrews. Persevere in faithfulness. Press on to maturity is our theme in Hebrews. If you'll grab your Bibles and turn with me, if you want to, on uh, Hebrews 10. I'll have the passages up on the screen as well, but Hebrews 10. Now, after I chose this sermon to preach, I discovered that Jack actually preached on Hebrews 1 through 6 back in January at the same time I was preaching on Hebrews in January in Hillsborough. And in part two, Jack does a great job of explaining Hebrews 6. So if you missed those messages, I'd encourage you to go back and watch those on the website and see how he's, because it was great and uh, in agreement with those things and how he did that. So do that. Make sure to look that up. Here's a precursor to, to, to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 contains a warning to professing believers who are threatening to turn against Christ. 
Any who turn from Christ could expect divine judgment and prove that they may not be saved. The key here is may. They may not be saved. Just because I'm in disobedience doesn't mean I'm not saved. But the reality is it could be. So we need to check that out. We need to look at it. Hebrews 10, verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled under the sun, uh, uh, underfoot the Son of God and who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the Lord. See, in this essence, when I say that Christ's sacrifice has been offered for us and in that sacrifice has made me holy and we do not persevere in holiness... Hebrews warns of a fearful expectation, a possible expectation of judgment and raging fire. Deliberate and repetition sin in the Christian life is very scary. It, it doesn't mean we're not saved. It may need just be in repentance, but it could reveal that I truly don't have a saving faith. Verse 32. But recall the former days when after you enlightened. Remember how you lived when you first came to faith in Christ. Here's how they lived after they came. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partner with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that uh, you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of assurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Now that last passage, we may look at that and go, oh, that must be talking about a salvation of works. It's not. No one can earn salvation by works. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, through work of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. If a person is truly saved, that person cannot lose their salvation. I cannot lose a salvation because of my actions, which wasn't the result of my actions in the first place. See, when one confesses Jesus as Lord and trusts in his death, burial, and resurrection for salvation, Christ's righteousness is then accredited to that person, and there is absolutely no greater righteousness in Christ. Therefore, get this, my actions cannot make me more righteous than I am in Christ, but my actions cannot actually make me less righteous than I am in Christ. My righteousness before God is not based on me. My righteousness is based on Christ's righteousness being accredited to me. But there is evidence, there is works, there is bearing fruit in a person's life that they are saved. And so a person doesn't lose their salvation because how they live. They might just reveal that they truly aren't saved. It's not about losing, but they may just be falling off and need repentance. The truth is, salvation is a matter of heart. And God's the one that knows the heart. But our actions prove where our heart is. James 2. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Luke 15. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keep them, he it is who loves me. Verse John 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him, loves other believers. By this we know that we love the children of God. How do we know we love others? When we love God and obey His commands. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. 
See, a saving faith leads to willful obedience. My worship and love for God leads to us wanting to be obedient to God. Our attitude towards God actually reveals, uh, our attitude toward obedience actually reveals our hearts. See, the people to whom the book of Hebrews is written has done good things in the past. They had showed evidence of being saved. But difficulty was brewing and somewhere a breakdown was beginning to occur. Flip over to Hebrews 5 with me. Hebrews 5, verse 11. And this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. I want to stop right there real quick. This dull means slow or sluggish. This isn't a physical problem with the hearing. This is a heart issue. Again, it's a heart issue. You don't have to turn there, but look, Hebrews 3, he goes over. He says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. John Piper says this, the heart is not eager and diligent to embrace the promises and turn from them into faith and patience. Instead, the word comes into the ears, goes down to the heart, and hits something hard or tough or something that's uh, starting to get hard. That's dullness of hearing. The promises come into the ear, but there's no passion for them. There's no lover's embrace. There's no cherishing or treasuring, and so no faith, no patience. And if things don't change, no inheritance of eternal life, which is why he wrote the book, it is an incredibly dangerous disease, this dullness of hearing. So continue with me in, a, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. It's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. If you think about this, when you're hired to do a certain job, there's expectations in that role. Just got a new job. There's expectations coming into that of what I would do, how I would do that job. If I don't meet those expectations, they're going to correct me or I'll get fired. If you're an athlete, there are expectations as you and an athlete. There's a code of conduct to be on the team, participation requirements, practice, prepare, play well. And if you don't, you either don't play or you're removed from the team. The recipients of Hebrew were people to whom better things were expected. It wasn't that these people couldn't learn, it's that they were lazy. They were lazy. They should have been mature Christians by now. They evidently had been converted for some time, and they ought to make much more progress in, the fa- in their faith than they in fact had. And the tr- author is troubled by their immaturity. When's the last time we've been troubled by immaturity in Christian's life? So what's happening with the people in Hebrews? See, some professing believers seem to be toying with the idea of returning to Judaism. The writer of Hebrews affirmed that continuance and commitment to Christ demonstrated real Christianity. The readers had professed some experiences with Christ. If they turned away from Him after this initial start, their destruction would show that they were not really Christians. They needed to understand the seriousness of what they were considering. 
See, turning from Christ, a salvation by grace, to Judaism, a salvation by works, one might show that their profession of faith was not true. It might. Might show that I don't understand what I truly believe. See, contrary to some claims, there are not multiple ways to the same God. Different religions are not climbing the same mountain in a, to the same destination, just taking different routes. That is not the case. Christianity, Judaism, Muslim, Mormons, and Jehovah Witnesses do not worship the same God. What a person believes about Jesus Christ matters. And what a person believes about Jesus Christ will be evident in how they actually live their life. Truth be told, there are a lot of people who claim to believe in Jesus and who are in church every Sunday but are lost. They're not saved. They're Christians in name only. Christ actually has no bearing in their lives. They do not follow their beliefs Uh, They do not allow their beliefs to require much of them in terms of morality and responsibility. Again, salvation is a matter of the heart. There is no human that can actually determine the inward condition of another people, of another person. I cannot determine your salvation. I can look at your life and tell you what I see, but I cannot determine truly the inward nature of your heart. And the author of Hebrews knows this. So he wrote the letter as if he was writing to actual Christians, knowing that some of them may not be Christians. Some of them may need to... Just turn. He addresses his words to those professing Christians. And he says, if you say you're a Christian, listen up. Demonstrate your real faith by endurance to your commitment to Christ and his ways. Hebrews 3. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Do you want to know if you share in Christ? You'll know when you've held firmly to the end. You'll know by looking at your life. Someone came up to Francis Chan after a conference one year and said, man, it was great to see all those people come to faith in Christ. And he said, we'll see. We'll see. Knowing some people get caught up in the moment. Some people maybe don't truly believe. We'll see the evidence over their life if they truly understand what they're they're believing. See, the author urges them to show their real faith by endurance in their commitment. Only their endurance with Jesus would demonstrate that they had the real thing. The writer of Hebrews called his audience to mature understanding of Christian distinctives. They may have tried to live a minimal Christian commitment to avoid alienating their friends. They actually needed to leap into the deep water of obedience and understanding. If you're one that thinks by going to church, reading your Bible, giving money, being a good person in any way is going to earn you salvation, then you don't correctly understand salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is not Jesus plus something it is jesus alone the works in my life come as a result of my salvation that i cannot earn on my own and so here don't participate in christian things thinking that acting like a christian will actually make you right with god don't call yourself a christ follower if you don't actually have any desire to follow christ or become like christ Don't say you love God if you just simply just have affections for God and you think he's cool. If you don't love God above all else and desire to worship him and do what he says now here in this life, heaven is definitely not the place you're going to want to be for all eternity. And so here's a question. 
Do you desire what Christ has to offer? What he can do for you? Or do you actually desire Christ himself? Do you want the things of Christ? Or do you want Christ in the relationship with Christ? Let me put it a different way. If all the attributes of heaven that we know of heaven, what it's all going to be like, how great it is, if all those attributes were the same, never to change, but God was not there, would you still want to spend eternity in heaven? See, Paul Warsher says, if you're seeking to follow Christ because of what you hope he will do, he will do things for you. Don't miss that. He will do things for you. But if, if you're following just in hopes of what he do, fix your marriage, make you happy, healthy and wealthy, give you an easy life, spend eternity in heaven, that's idolatry. You are worshiping those things, not Christ. You want things, not Christ. We follow Christ, seek Christ, worship Christ for the sake of Christ because he himself is worthy. Work and obedience flow out of a life surrendered to Christ. It flows from a person whom God has the affection of their life more than anything else in the world. They are the result of truly understanding who Christ is and what he has done. See, the author of Hebrews does not warn them to come back to faith by writing a letter merely filled with imperatives and exclamation points. Rather, he gets theological and addresses the fundamental questions of who Jesus is and what he has done. He knows if the readers are going to endure, they will endure because they believe the truth about Jesus, not because they've risen to the occasion through personal fortitude. Why be obedient? Why do what God says? Because of who Christ is and what he has done, period. That's it. No matter what happens in my life, whether I lose my job, money, whatever it is, whatever is taken from me, whatever I don't get, whatever I want, Christ is enough. My relationship and having a relationship with Christ is enough for me no matter what happens in my life. See, as a believer, Christ lives in me. I am now in the process of becoming like Christ. And the work God is doing in my life is to grow me in Christ-likeness, Romans 8. The work that he is doing through the church in my life is growing us in the fullness of Christ, Ephesians 4. The test to see if you are truly in saving faith, 2 Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. <clears throat> do you see Christ in you? Is there evidence of Christ's likeness in your life? See, Jesus is our model. And so we have to ask ourselves, how did Christ live his life? What's the, Hebrew, what's the theme of Hebrews? Here's how Christ lived his life. He persevered in faithfulness and he invested internally. He persevered in faithfulness and he invested internally. How did Jesus invest internally? It's the mission of Grace Community Church. Love God, love people, and lead others to do the same. Number one, love God above all else. Put God above all else. Seek God. Get in the Word. Be in the Word. Remind ourselves constantly every day of who God is and what He has done in Christ because the Gospel is our motivation for all that we do for Christ. And you cannot read the book of Hebrews and not see how great Christ is and what He has done for us. Hebrews 2. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? See, the primary emphasis in Hebrews is Jesus' supremacy and the fact that this supremacy lies at the heart of the new covenant. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 5, 
For the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ compels us because of who Christ is and what He has done. It makes us do things. What have they concluded? Why is this controlling them? And here's what it says. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. If we do not love God above all else, there's no reason to move forward. It is out of our love for God, out of our worship for God, that flows the entirety of our lives. Jesus was willing to die an excruciating death on the cross for your sins because of His love for the Father. John 14, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. When's the last time we said that? I want to be obedient to what God has. I want to do what God has for me because I want people to know that I love Him. See, I can guarantee if you want to get to know me, you can find somebody in this room that probably knows me and they'll share with you what they know about me and they'll share with you their impression about me, right? But the best way to actually get to know me, come talk to me. Spend time with me. Hear it from my mouth about who I am. See, that's why the place to start with loving God is we have to be in the Word. You have to be in the Word. The Bible is God's words to us. It is about Jesus. And Jesus is not something we just add to our life. He is our life. Bible reading is not an activity that I add. It is a part of my life. It is how I get to know God. It's how I spend time with God. It's how I grow in my love for God. It's where God reveals Himself to me. It's like eating. I need it for my life to understand this relationship and build this relationship. Because also, it is in the Word that only in the light of Christ and what He has done found in Scripture that we can actually correctly understand ourselves. If we spend all the time in the world evaluating ourselves to other believers, I will always look good or maybe not so good maybe maybe you're better than me some of you probably are so but when i evaluate myself to a holy god i realize just how sinful i am i realize how much i missed the mark see john calvin says it is a certain thing that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he first looked upon god's face Man, before the majesty of God is humbled, feels himself undone and sees something of his sinful heart's core. Without such a revelation of our true nature outside of Christ, there can be no true spirituality. As believers, we have to be in the Word, spending time reading God's Word. Let me ask you this. Do you believe that someone can be a baby Christian for the majority of their Christian life? If we do believe that, we're saying that somehow a person can persist for years and decades in the state of spiritual maturity, yet nowhere in Scripture do we see that. Actually, in Scripture, we see warnings against that type of behavior. We see warnings for those that are not growing on, those that are not pressing on, those that have stopped growing. Because we are alive in Christ and something that, if it ceases to continue to grow, it is what? Dead. Those alive in Christ are constantly growing in Christ. The author of Hebrews said that they should be teachers now. They should have been matured. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. 
You know why the universal church is full of immature Christians who know a lot about the Bible but aren't doing it or teaching it to others? Number one, 35% of professing Christians say they read the Bible at least once a week. 45 say seldom or never. Number two, we have actually failed to carry out the Great Commission, which is your lead others to do the same in your mission statement. And this is the process God designed and Christ demonstrated for Christians to go uh, to continue to grow in maturity. As you are going about your life, make disciples. How did Jesus make disciples? If you were to read through the Gospels, how did he do it? He walked with people, talked with people, taught people, corrected people, demonstrated people, assigned tasks to them. He observed 12 men for three years. He lived life with them. His life was the lesson and uh, the living life together was their classroom. So he gets to the end and he comes to this 11 disciple and he says, go and make disciples. Nowhere do we see that the 11 go, uh, Jesus, how do we make disciples? He just demonstrated how to make disciples with them for three years. And he's saying, now go do what I just did with you to others. Yet we've replaced discipleship relationships, which is something every single Christian should be doing on a personal level with church functions, church-driven activities, services, and, and studies. We do discipleship and call it, think discipleship is for paid staff and for gifted teachers to do. Yet discipleship's not actually a program. It's a way of life. It's studying the Bible together, but it's also taking the time to learn the Bible and put it into practice. It is walking side by side with somebody. It's living life together. It's growing in spiritual maturity with the intent that actually some point, what you're doing with this person, you will separate and move on and go do that. Both of you go do that with somebody else. You go and help other people grow together. In a discipleship relationship, everyone at some point becomes a teacher. Everyone. And I'm not talking about classroom teaching. I'm not talking about preaching. I'm not talking about taking a lesson and teaching a lesson. I'm talking about simply sharing what Christ has done in your life and the relationship you have with Christ with another believer, with another, or with another human. Can we not do that? Has Christ not made enough impact that I can't actually sit down and have a conversation and share with somebody what the gospel is and what God has done in my life? Teaching somebody, right? Simply teaching somebody about what I know about Christ and sharing that with them. Matthew 28, go and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. 2 Timothy 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Hebrews 5.12, you ought to be teachers by now. Do you know the greatest way to actually learn something? The most growth that I had is as a pastor, as a teacher. In any realm, I worked in the fire service for 12 years. The most I grew in knowing and knowledge of the fire service is teaching a class, teaching somebody else a principle. I had to study the material, had to know the peer material in order to teach it somebody else. And if you think about it, the process that we do now is, hey, we'll get the special person to teach this lesson, everybody else come and learn. We've taken the aspect of you becoming teachers, of Christians becoming teachers, and you studying it to go and teach it on a personal level away. And that is where so much depth and growth comes as we learn to go and take that and teach it to somebody else. The second way we turn our attention to investing eternally is love others. Love others. 
As we talked about the result of reconciliation, we have a restored relation of God. We actually come to understand ourselves better through reconciliation, but we also, the reconciliation opens the door for us to live in right relationship with each other. As God designed, Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. John 14, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Just go read the book of 1 John. 1 John 3, we know that we have passed out of life into death because we love brothers. We love other believers. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has not seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment that we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother. See, Christianity puts an end to living for self above all else, being opposed to other people, actually being in competition with other people. It puts an end to actually looking to cancel other people. Christianity is a care for others. It is a love for others. It is a service for others. It's actually putting others before ourselves. It is a desire to help others grow. Hebrews 3, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart leading you uh, to fall away from the believing God, but exhort one another every day. In that passage, if you look at that, one of the things is, is you have to look at another person's life and see if there's something going on in their life. And if you see it, then I must exhort them. I need to encourage them. I need to look at their life and notice, so I must spend time with you to know what's going on in your life so I can know, do you need encouragement? You seem to be hard-hearted. You seem to be turning away. I want to exhort you to turn from that. Hebrews 10, let us consider how to stir one another up to loving good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of son, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look for his own interests, but also the interest of others. Persevere in faithfulness, invest eternally, is the theme of Hebrews. It is how Christ lived. It's our model for our life. And I want to ask you this. How about you? If you call yourself a believer, are you growing in Christ-likeness? Is there evidence of growth in your relationship with Christ? Or have you become dull of hearing? Do you hear the word of God? It comes into your head, your ears into your head, starts going down to your heart, and then all of a sudden there's something that pushes back to what you hear. You know, I just don't, I don't take that. I don't believe that. I don't believe he means that I have to really love somebody to show evidence that I'm his. Or do you hear the word? It comes in, it takes root in your heart. It penetrates your heart and it actually starts to grow and it starts to flow out of your life and you start to see evidence of that truth being lived out in your life. How about this? Are you able to teach others about Christ? If you claim salvation in Christ, we would assume we know what it means to be saved, right? Can we not be able to teach that to somebody else. 
I had to come to an understanding of it in order to claim it, to say I am saved, asking myself, can I teach that to somebody else? Let me share the gospel of Jesus Christ with you, that you're a sinner, that Christ died for you, that you need to turn to him. Are we teaching others? How about this? Has Christ taken a hold of your life? Does Christ and your relationship with Christ make a difference in how you live your life? Or are you just Christian in name only? It's just a title you wear. Does who he is and what he has done actually impact how you live your life? What difference does it make that there is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, through the work of the Holy Spirit? What difference does that make in your life and how you live your life? See, in the book of Hebrews, we see just how great Christ is and what he has done. And that should be our motivation for us to preserve in faithfulness, to be obedient to what he says, and to invest internally just as Christ has done for us. The praise team's going to come up and we're going to close in one final song. But as they come up, I'm going to read one last passage as we look at what Christ has done for us and the greatness of Christ. And so as I read this, if you'll focus on the words and what's taking place here and what the truth of being spoke here and think about what truly is happening in this passage. Hebrews 9. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven himself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. (laughs) Amen. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not of his own, for then he would have to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has suffered once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings have you, not, you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, those who are continually growing in Christ-likeness. Church, let's stand and sing about Christ being mine forever.